0: both from an educational standpoint, as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. For this episode of the podcast, I'm pleased to introduce Bill Jaynes, managing partner of Iron Point Partners, a private equity firm that was formed by him and his partners uh, under the auspices of the Robert M. Bass Company. Bill is a longtime Washingtonian who moved here pretty much right after college and joined CB at the times uh, the predecessor of CBRE, as a broker. And uh, along with my uh, earlier podcast guests, Cab Grayson and Ray Ritchie, were the foundation of the CB office in downtown Washington. Bill talks about that, and then he goes into his evolution into development to joining Lincoln Property Company, which is obviously one of the largest development firms in the country, doing all product types. His focus in Washington was office buildings primarily, which he talks about some of his early projects. And this was in the mid-1980s. And then in the early 1990s, as a result of the capital crisis and uh, recession, he was approached by Uh, Robert Bass, to form a partnership to invest in real estate on an opportunistic basis. And then he was involved in entity level investing. And he talks about some of those achievements, including the formation of Car America, which he was involved in helping Oliver Carr Jr. in doing that. So it's an interesting and wide ranging discussion. So without further ado, here is Bill James. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. I appreciate your, uh, your time.
1: You're welcome. And I'm not sure of the honor of why I'm doing this, but I appreciate it. And I uh, listened to both Cab Grayson's and Ray Ritchie's podcast and really enjoyed it. And, you know, there are many things that I, that I thought I knew about those guys in terms of what they've accomplished, but clearly they've both been extremely successful in, in their endeavors in, in different ways. It was, well, it was fun to be exposed to it.
0: I came to you because we've met a long time ago, and Cab speak so, so spoke so highly of you and your and your background and, and what you've done since that time as well. So I want to get into that, and I've, I want to start now by uh, finding out uh, your role at Iron Point Partners, what you do there and on a day-to-day basis, and kind of your uh, your strategy and your thought process.
1: Sure. So, Iron Point Partners. We're on our fourth uh, real estate opportunistic fund. My day-to-day focus. I'm the managing uh, partner, along with uh, Tom Lynch, who's um, also managing partner. And what what I do is, you know, oversee fundraising and uh, source deals. And you know, from that standpoint, and obviously, I was the one of the original partners, along with Tom. And others, which I believe we're going to talk about later on in, in the uh, interview, to um, you know make sure everything is uh, is running on time and and trying to make you know the proper real estate decisions in ter- in terms of the environment. Our focus for Iron Point Four is essentially we're doing re- uh, some greenfield development of data centers. So you know new development one, two. We do have some senior housing portfolios where we um, are focused on assisted living, private pay, and Alzheimer's, also known as memory care, uh, three partnerships throughout the United States, and from D.C. to Boston with a group called Benchmark, uh, Florida to Arizona with a group called Avante, and then in the upper Midwest with a group called Vista Springs. We've always done deep value or opportunistic real estate, and in terms of you know trying to you know, mobilize capital to, to capitalize when there's, a, when there's an event and to either recapitalize companies or, you know, buy distressed deals. And then lastly, we do graduate student housing. And what I mean by graduate student housing, student housing, as most people know, it is sort of four rooms in a common area. What we do is we're focused on, for instance, right next to Brown Medical School, we have a little under 200 units. It's really multifamily. Mm-hmm. but with more studios. Yep. And so you can not only lease to the Brown medical students, but you can also lease to the, you know, people in the neighborhood, plus people going to RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, Johnson and Wales, or Providence College. And that's really sort of the focus of, uh, we do do a little bit of industrial and a little bit of self-storage too. That's the role of um, what I do and i um, so so very works. involved with it. Are you involved more in
0: fundraising or are you more involved in the deal side of the business? Just um of sort destiny. of
1: both. And you know, the four the four equal partners at Iron Point Partners are myself, Gene McEwen, Ryan Haas, and as I mentioned, uh, Tom Lynch. Okay.
0: So you kind of spread your activities among the four of you then to some extent.
1: Exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah. yeah and it works out very well, and we've all been together since 2005 and then uh, we have two senior advisors in the form of Bob Branson who is you know I've been business partners with him since the early 80s and also um, a gentleman named John Barry out of Dallas who uh, been business partners with since the early 90s okay and Iron Point partners has two offices well we say two and a half offices we have Dallas and Washington DC it's sort of equally divided um, we have a Person out in um, San Francisco, and then our back offices are in Fort Worth, Texas.
0: Okay. Well, we'll we'll explore Iron Point in much more detail a little later mm-hmm. on in the discussion. And so I thought maybe we could transition a little bit to your to your origin story and how you got started in the business, and also you know where you grew up and all all the influences you had as as a uh, as a youngster. So. Tell us that. Where, where did you grow up, Bill, and uh, what parental influences did you get from both your mother and father?
1: Well, my parental influences would definitely not have led me to real estate, <laughs> and I'll, <laughs> I'll get into that, okay. um, but uh, I grew up in a town called Lincoln, Massachusetts. Lincoln is literally, it's between Concord and Lexington, Massachusetts, which most people have heard of. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's claimed to fame is that's where Paul Revere was captured the night of April 19th, ah. which was the d- events of both, uh, the battles at uh, Lexington and, and Concord. And, um, and it was sort of a very bucolic town. Um, it's about 10 miles west of uh, Boston and, uh, I was the oldest of five. And so, you know, that's where I grew up. My mother grew up in Watertown, Massachusetts. and. Um, She, uh, uh, and my father grew up in the, um, basically New York city area and he was a, um, a nuclear physicist. So he went to Cornell, studied under a guy named Hans Beta, who's one of the, um, founders of the Manhattan project in addition to Mr. Oppenheimer. And, um, then he went to, um, MIT and, um, got his degree, his PhD, and graduated 23 and was sort of off and running. And um, my mother went to Watertown High School and then Regis College, which is a, um, it was a women's college, in uh, Catholic women's college in um, Weston, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And my mother was a huge influence in terms of reading. She uh, made sure that uh, we were trying to read a book every day or, you know, at least, least as much as we possibly could. And, you know, in when finally the, you know, everybody went off to college, she, she became one of the librarians in Lincoln, Massachusetts. So my father was very involved with uh, DARPA. And so if you think about, I think you know what DARPA is in yes. terms of the army research. And um, most of the things he did, he really couldn't talk about because it was all top secret, but he, a huge influence of his was using lasers to separate isotopes so uh, he developed a patent where you could um you know back in the late 50s you would waste almost you know 50 of the uranium in terms of producing nuclear energy he got it down to like one wow. percent and so and that morphed into if you if you recall in the uh you know early 80s with reagan uh you know the whole star wars sure uh, and um, he was extremely involved with that because Star Wars is basically based on lasers. And it's, it's really interesting because you think about the, the evolution of, of lasers, you know, use, using for defense, but now, you know, uh, I've had my eyes done a couple of times yes. using lasers yes. in terms of, you know, getting rid of some small cataracts. And so it's, it, it's just interesting how that all plays out.
0: Growing up in that household, Bill, that must have been pretty amazing, actually, when I think about the intellectual firepower that you're around there.
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, uh, I can distinctly remember in seventh grade, I had a math question that said 7x equals 49. And I went into my father's office and, you know, said, Dad, how can can you, um, how do I solve this? And rather than him just saying it's long division, he would uh, say, let's, you know, there's about 15 different ways we can approach this. And, um, after about an hour, I'd be walking out of the, um, uh, office, not very happy. And, um, you know, typical father-son argument because <laughs> the job of a son is to upset their dad uh-huh. and, um, which I did a pretty good job of. But, um, <laughs> I noticed one of the questions you had here, you know, did did you ever consider the sciences? And the reality is I never took one physics class. So wow. I think that me something. So <laughs> it's
0: did, did he scare you? Uh, did he, was he so intellectually brilliant that he scared you as a child or what? what no, um,
1: not at all. You know, it's interesting. I'm listening to Cap Grayson's, uh, uh, you know, interview podcast. Uh, he, he talked about how his, how he was embarrassed because his dad was a Marine, right. you know, during World war two and he'd get right. dressed up and run in the, you know, his, his boots, you yep. know, to stay in shape. And, um, no, it was just, you know, it was just an idiosyncrasy. It was like, you know, I'm not going to be a scientist. I'm going to probably do something else. But what my father did do, he was a very big influence in terms of outside sports, like, um, you know, introducing to skiing. But he also really liked the whitewater canoe. So you think about April in New Hampshire on a really cold, fast oh, sure. river. Yeah. yeah, that wasn't a lot of fun as a, you know, fourth grader. Um, <laughs> rock climbing, which, you know, I still don't really like. And then lastly, uh, he'd make us go up Mount Washington and do ice climbing, which I really didn't, because all my friends were over at Wildcat Mountain skiing and I had to, you know, be having a 25 pound pack on my back, you know, climbing up, uh, Tuckerman's ravine. And so, but you know something, it's those elements of life that you, you know, you appreciate uh, later and, um, yeah, it, it was all good. So
0: it sounds like he had lessons about resilience that he passed on to you a little bit. It sounds like <laughs> teaching me resilience in a tough way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I'd rather, I would have rather been playing ice hockey right. or uh, football or lacrosse and, or soccer. And, you know, he'd be, um, he never really was a, a team, you know, did not like team sports. I thought that he didn't like them. He just didn't enjoy them.
0: Sure. So you, you kind of rebelled and is that what you kind of did then you went into team? I would say
1: that's, that's maybe a one way to couch it. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Uh Okay. But uh, you know, isn't the sun supposed to rebel a little bit? Of course. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, yeah. So did, did you play high school sports then?
1: I did. I played, uh, soccer and lacrosse at uh, Lincoln Sudbury regional high school, Uh which was the uh, public high school. And then, um. And then I played both sports in college too.
0: Oh, so what drove you to go to Bowdoin college out of curiosity? I understand it's where you
1: went. First of all, it was in Maine and we'd spent summers in Maine. Uh-huh. So it was, it was great from that perspective of being close to there. And also it was, you know, it was great college and, um, made a lot of friends there and, uh, lifetime friends. And, uh, Played uh, soccer and lacrosse all four years and, um, you know, got a degree in, um, in you know, government. And uh-huh. so that's, interesting. yeah. And my goal was to basically, when I graduated from Bowdoin, I worked for a congressman named Bill Cohen at the time. He later, oh, sure. he later went on to become senator, U.S. senator for Maine and also eventually uh, head of the Defense Department under Clinton, even though he was Republican. And so I graduated in June of 1976 and basically worked on his campaign. He, he won re-election, and I would like to think that I was very helpful in that. But, um, you know, he, he had already, he was an incumbent, and that was very helpful. And my goal at the time was to basically come down to Washington, D.C., work in his office for, um, you know, for a couple of years, establish a Virginia residency, and then go to UVA law School. That was oh, what was okay. in the back of my mind. And after the campaign, I came down to Washington and I worked in his office for about two weeks. And I said, you know, working on a campaign was a lot, was fun. But, you know, you're not going to do it forever. But working in his office was not really what I had in mind. And essentially what happened was I went to a, a Bowdoin alumnus, a guy named uh, Gordon Linky uh, at the time. He was head of the Merrill Lynch office in um Washington, D.C., for the actually the Washington, D.C. region. And he, you know, sat me down and said, Look, you know, we'd love to hire you at Merrill Lynch, but you know, the stock market really stinks right now. And we're not, we're hiring, but we're really only hiring experienced people. Mm-hmm. But there's an, this was November of 1976, but there's an office that's just opened up right down the hall. This is on the third or the fourth floor on uh, 2020 k street Yep. and it's called Cole banker and i thought okay well that's you know i'll get a job with a bank and <laughs> so gordon walked me over to meet jim o'brien who had just opened the office and literally you know we sat down and and gordon said said hey jim just spend some time with uh, bill and you know Probably not the right fit, you know, has no sales experience, doesn't know Washington, D.C. You know, you're looking for people that have been, you know, in sales for, you know, four to eight years. But, you know, just give them some advice. And Jim and I just really hit it off. He'd grown up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Jim was the son of, um, of a policeman in Cambridge, Mass., and he had gone to very, very good hockey player. I'll get into that. But, um, also a, um, had gone to Harvard and played hockey there. Huh. And he had a, um, he was actually, he made the 1960 Olympic U S Olympic hockey team along with one of his, uh, fellow teammates, a guy named Bill Clary, who went on to become the coach at Harvard forever. And unfortunately, he broke his collarbone, I think, a month to six weeks uh, before the Olympics. Mm. So he wasn't able to play, which stinks. But Jim O'Brien was amazing. And he said, you know, Bill, on a flyer, I'm going to have you take the, uh, I called it at the time, and most of us referred to it as sort of the, the Coldwell Banker nut test. I'm sure you hadn't take it, John. Yes. I and do. if you're... If you recall, the first hour of the test is sort of can you read, write, and, um, sure. you know, can you add and subtract and do a little bit of multiplication and long division because yep. it was before there was an HP, you know, 32C. And took the test and apparently I did very, very well on it. So he actually made me an offer. And, you know, I'll, I'll sort of reflect back, but when I first walked into that office and you know, for the first time after being given the job offer, offer. And it was Jim O'Brien and I think Dick Kramer had just arrived. And I think the first people in the office, if I can remember correctly, were George Forrest, mm-hmm. Jeff Green, Jamie Kavler, Hal Bowles, and Steve Spencer. I was actually hired before Ken McVary and Ray Ritchie, which, um, and, and I think I was hired about the same time as Bill Curtis. But regardless, it was, uh, it was a great, great learning experience. What, what did
0: you do at, at Coal Banker when you started? What was your role there?
1: <laughs> My role? Yes. There, there were no roles. It was basically whatever you could, you eat what you kill, and you, know, you could be doing a deal in, up in Columbia, which I did a lot of R&D deals up there. I was basically doing a lot of industrial deals Sort of moving companies out of Washington D.C. If you'll think about B Street oh. in, you know Northwest, yeah, out to um, Washington Business Park, which at the time was owned by Cabot, Cabot, and Forbes,
0: right? Which and is I'll, in I'll Prince, George Prince George's County. Yep, Prince
1: right? George's County, exactly, yeah. and then. Yeah. Um, uh, George Forrest and I actually, uh, had, at Washington Business Park in Prince George's County it was owned by a company at the time called Cabot Cabot and
0: Forbes. Right, out of Boston. Mm-hmm.
1: Out of Boston. And it just right. so happened that the uh, head of Cabot Cabot and Forbes was a guy named Jerry Blakely. And I'd actually uh, grown, they had, his sons had actually gone to grade school with me and then they were also <laughs> at Bowdoin. Small And Jerry was a big Bowdoin guy also. so. Yeah. You know, I thought I should call Jerry Blakely up and just, you know, talk to him since, you know, we're doing deals at Washington Business Park. And he said, you know, Bill, we're looking at doing deals in, uh, what we really want to do is do a downtown office building deal in, uh, Washington, DC. And so not knowing very much about Washington, DC, you know, I went to George Horace and, you know, literally at the time we, uh, George Forrest and I sold the Hyrick site, as it was known. Think about Hyrick beer.
0: Sure, Hyret I know the, the mansion on uh, the mansion.
1: Exactly. Yeah, right, and right. we sold that site to um, Cabot, Cabot, and Forrest, and had to deal with all the heirs. And it was a, it was a was great the location outcome
0: for us. Location of that site? Just do you remember? It was
1: twelfth in Pennsylvania. Twelfth
0: and Penn. Okay.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, and right. so it's it's remarkable that. Um, you know, we were able to pull that off, but I'm sort of jumping ahead because, you know, the other people that sort of came into play, I worked closely with Bill Curtis in Montgomery County. And, you know, the, probably the person that had the most influence on me was, uh, Ken McVeary. Yes. And because Ken was maybe hired two months after I was, but, you know, Ken came in with not only sales experience, but also he had taught sales right. and, I would say Ken McVeary, by the way, Bob Branson, who's been my business partner forever, their brother-in-laws. That's how I met Bob Branson. But Ken probably instilled more discipline in me in terms of, you know, I'll never forget the quote, plan your work and work your plan. Yep. And it was, you know, even though I was doing that, I wasn't doing it in the way that, you know, should have been really, really helpful. And he really, uh,
0: Ken, Ken trained me at, at Coal Banker, too. Uh, right. So I came in from Chicago, and he, yep. did, he did the East Coast training for the whole eastern half of the country for, for Coal Banker at the time. So, Did you uh,
1: start at Coal Banker in Chicago?
0: No, yes, I did in, in Oak Brook. So I was in the Oak Brook office, and uh, I don't know if you ever met Bob Jackson, but he was my the, the resident manager at the time uh, that hired me.
1: So did you ever work with a guy named uh, John Gates?
0: No, uh, he may have been the downtown office before I was there. So I, I started at, at Cobble Banker in 1983. So several years after you did. So yeah,
1: John he, Gates was um, an industrial real estate broker. And then he went on to form Centerpoint Properties.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: So anyway, but, uh-huh. yeah, right. very good friend. But, you know, Ray Ritchie uh, joined maybe three or four months after me, and um, literally, I felt really sorry for him when he was taking his Coldwell Banker nut test, quote unquote, because during that time, there were two bomb scares in the building. Hmm. And uh, because if you recall, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation was above, and a lot of people were very upset with that organization at the time. So, you know, I just thought to myself, there's no way he's going to pass this test, you know, with two bomb scares and, uh, you know, you know, Ray and I know Ray, he didn't even matter. It was, uh, I'll, I'll always remember him walking in, you know, after first time with Ann and his two children. And I think Dave Ritchie was maybe two or three years old when I first met him, you know, when he was being sort of walked around the office, being, meeting everybody and, you know, you think about other people in that era, you know, there's um, John Kyle and Vernon and John McEvely and, uh, you know, Chip Ryan and Tom Cafferty and Bill Camp and Bob Foss yeah. and Dennis Turner. They all worked very well together. And, you know, you also have to throw in Susan Hott and I still Jillian. I at the time it was Jillian Finkelstein and also Marie Carl. And then I worked for, I was there from 1970. Well, January fir- that first week in January of 1977 to I think 1983 or 84, I can't re- really remember right now. But you know, that's when um, you know I had the opportunity to meet, um, you know, to jump over to Lincoln Property Company
0: and yeah, really enjoyed. That.
1: Talk about that so, evolution. Essentially, uh, Mac Pogue and Bill Duval were looking to you know build out the the Northeast, and they were looking for a Mid Atlantic partner. They had in the you know in the New York New Jersey area they they hired a guy named Steve Pazicky really smart and then uh, and then they hired out a, um, a John Hines to head up the Boston office for you know sort of New England.
0: How long uh, had Lincoln been around at that point? Because I know that he Mac broke off from Trammel Crow. Uh, when was In that? the late
1: sixties? Yeah, so 60s. basically okay. the right. partnership is that Lincoln was formed, Uh, Mac Mac Pogue and Trammell Crow were partners Mm -hmm. and Mac was basically, uh, I believe this is correct, but you know, Mac Pogue was the uh, sort of the multifamily guy within Trammell Crow at the time, but he also wanted to do a lot more. And so they had a a breakup, but it was amicable and they did it on Lincoln's birthday and it was (laughs) done with, Mac Pogue and a guy named Bill Cooper, and I'll come back to that name, you know, later on in terms of some you know deals that we've done. But and they were very prevalent in the West Coast, uh, run by a gentleman named uh, Preston Butcher, who's actually still a very close friend of mine. And then Bill Duval, he had the West Coast, and then Bill Duval had the East Coast of commercial for Lincoln Property Company, and so. Basically, uh I was asked to join and and you know, I would say that it was obviously a very easy decision to 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 make, but a person who was very influential uh in all of that was um Ray Ritchie because I had watched his transformation from you know being a broker and then you know being a partner at Boston properties. Right. And uh-huh. so that was very helpful. And and before I get too far into Lincoln, I want to jump back to uh to Coldwell Banker days because, um, Cab Grayson mentioned that, you know, you know, we were actually roommates and the, the genesis of that story is sort of funny. We, we had, there were four of us and we were all roommates and one of the roommates left. And you know, when you're 24 years old and you're sharing a house with, you know, four people and suddenly the rent has just gone up because now you're splitting it three ways instead of four right. ways. Sure, We were sort of desperate to find another Another investor, quote unquote, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, Cab and I were introduced. I can't really remember the circumstances, but Cabell was uh, introduced. I think he was working at the World Wildlife Fund at the time or for Russell Train. I, 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 it slips my memory. But regardless, you know, he became a roommate and sort of, you know, one day he sort of said, you know, Bill, what do you do? And I was explaining it to him. He said, you know, that sounds interesting. He said, well, you know, you should go talk to Jim O'Brien. You know, I mean, maybe there's a role, maybe not, but, you know, it's, you know, least worth the conversation. And, um, you know, I don't think I have to add on, you know, Cab's, uh, you know, 40 plus years at at CBRE now. Mm -hmm. I I never, I still never referred to a CBRE. I still think of a CB. Of course. But, but that's, you know, that's how it came about. But really, you know, Cab, I think when, I know Cab, when he first joined, he was working very closely with, with uh, Jeff Green at the time, which was sort of multifamily and also right, right. investment sales, which was mm-hmm. a great place for him. You know, getting back to Lincoln, when I was hired, it was basically, "Hey, Bill, we want you to find a site, and you know, to do an office building, and and maybe do industrial a little bit." You know, my focus was totally commercial. Uh, there was another, I think, I think you know Jeff Franzen who was, yeah, he was really the multifamily guy working for um, a. The head of the Lincoln multifamily group, a guy named Tim Byrne, really good guy.
0: So he was already on board. So Jeff was. Preceded. You know something
1: I can't even remember if he was or if he wasn't, but okay. it, it didn't matter. I, I like Jeff a lot, and you know we tried to do some things together, but it never worked out just because you know for whatever reason it wasn't through lack of trying. So
0: so Lincoln was divided uh, among product type then uh, internally. Yes, it was.
1: Multi, it was basically in. The northeast, I believe, it was it was just multifamily and commercial. In Dallas, they did industrial and retail, but in in our area, we didn't you know, we didn't delve into that. And you know, my focus was commercial. And the first deal we did was over at um, Pentagon City, which we bought some additional land from uh, MCI, which sort of two pink granite buildings right there. Really, on the southern end of uh, the Pentagon site, right had, next to the had, mall.
0: Had Bob Smith developed uh, the land there, or how did you get the? No, nope.
1: okay. the the site was bought from MCI. So it okay. was a basically a guy named Bill Conway, who's you know one obviously one of the founding partners of Carlisle Group. Right, uh, was the was the CFO of MCI at the time, and that's sort of where I you know first met him, and you know we're still friends and the uh we bought the site we developed uh, i think it was a little under 600,000 square feet in two buildings and um we were fortunate enough to get both um US Marshals and the DEA as uh as tenants for that site before the building was complete and i think the final that lease was signed in 1987 we had another building that was in Roslyn Virginia that was well, I can't even—I can't think of it. It's right on Wilson Boulevard, and you know we leased that up. We uh, was called the milk produ—we called it the milk producers' site because the milk producers of Maryland, Virginia—that was their headquarters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that tells you how how things have evolved. How did you and,
0: capitalize deals at that time? I mean, how, and how did you structure deals? Uh, and so we structured
1: deals. Basically, what we did is we structured a uh, both deals. One was, uh, the one in Roslin was done with an Australian equity partner. Mm-hmm. And then the other, uh, the one at Pentagon city was it was a TIA craft deal now known as Naveen. And it was, uh, half debt, half equity. And, were, these, um,
0: were these existing relationships that Lincoln had, or did you create these yes. relationships?
1: Okay. Yes, they were existing relationships. Okay, And so, um, you know that's how that evolved, and you know b- both properties have been successful. Mm-hmm. And then we also did a little bit of industrial up in uh, Harford County, which was successful also. And with those deals, because it was new construction, and also it was in Maryland, ASB Capital were what were our partners on on those deals.
0: Interesting. You originated that equity then from
1: them. Yes. Yeah, okay. we did.
0: Uh huh. Okay.
1: But a but uh, at the time ASB you know c- couldn't you know TIA craft that was a um, hundred million dollar capitalization and I, I don't ASB at the time was not set up for that oh, but sure. great organization
0: yeah yeah so you did a your first deal out of the chute was a hundred million dollar deal uh, at Lincoln Property Company Yep. In
1: 1987
0: that's that's a no
1: it was um, it was 1980 1980- Five uh, the end of nineteen eighty-five or nineteen eighty-six because we we completed construction in wow. eighty-eight or eighty-seven, and um, and then sold it in nineteen eighty-eight to a joint venture of Landorf. If you remember that name, yes, uh-huh. And also, it was half Landorf and half uh, Sumitomo Realty.
0: Now, is that near the Pentagon City Mall site?
1: Okay. It's literally if you if you walk out, you you can't go into the to those to two Lincoln buildings because of you know the security around them as you can well imagine but um, it if you s- stand at the front of Lincoln Place as it was known and look north towards the Pentagon yes if you if you point to the left the malls is like 150 yards away
0: okay so, so those are excellent locations obviously so yeah uh, those
1: it worked out well and and what happened was uh, you know, at my time at Lincoln, it was interesting because, you know, Mac and Bill were, uh, you know, my two partners. My first hire was a guy named John Grissom, who was my CFO, who now runs the Chicago and actually the Midwest office of Lincoln Property Company. Bruce McNair was uh, head of marketing yes. and very good guy. And I know, then, Bruce. Yeah. And then, ironically, there was a guy named Bill Hickey. And sure. Bill Hickey was had just graduated from the University of Texas Engineering School, mm-hmm. and he, um, he he was my construction guy huh. on the project. And Bill is an exceptional individual, and he went on from you know working with a guy named Jack Parker for construction, and then he got into finance. He became my finance partner. And then when, you know, I decided to leave uh, Lincoln because of the potential opportunity with the Robert Bass Group, as it was known at the time, it just made a lot of sense that, I said, hey, Hickey's the right guy to run the uh, Washington, D.C., Lincoln Property Company office. And Hickey's great. You know, I'll I'll tell a really funny story about him. We were once playing in a tennis tournament, and I had... uh, and Hickey, by the way, is a very, very good tennis player. He played at the University of Texas, grew up in Midland, Texas, very close to the Bush family. Huh. And um, I double faulted both my balls into the net. And Hickey walked back to me and he said, Damn it, James, hit the ball over the net. Never hit the <laughs> ball into the net. If you hit the ball over the net, three things can happen one, the ball's out and they call it out. Two, the ball is out, but they think it's in. So they play it or three it's in. So if you hit the ball over the net, you have a 66% chance <laughs> of us, you know, getting, getting a point. So please do that. Now I'll say he, he used a little rougher language than that, yes. but it was, uh, you know, I've always used that line and it's absolutely correct. If you think about, you know, the percentages
0: Exactly. and,
1: and exactly. so it's, um, you know, it's been he, he's he's uh, done a great job of growing you know Lincoln's presence you know throughout the east coast in in conjunction with bill Duval and Mac pogue and uh, he's still a very close friend of mine I see him a lot when I'm in Dallas
0: let's for a moment go back a little bit to how you were hired at Lincoln and what what that process was like at that time as Mac pogue was looking at regional partners I mean Obviously, you had had a career at CB at the time, and you'd done quite a bit of business. How did they find you, and how did you know that you were you, – you said you emulated Ray Ritchie and his move. What made you want to make that move at the time, just out of
1: curiosity? A friend of mine's father, who was a VC um, a guy, his, his name was Jim Pastorica, and actually his son, Jim Pastorica, who's now in his 50s, uh, late 50s, was our next door neighbor in Lincoln, Massachusetts. And he was sort of one of the original venture capital guys. He was close to my father, but where my father was totally scientific oriented, he had a science background. He had gone to MIT, but then he went to Harvard Business School and he had great business acumen. And he he said, he once dispensed advice to me, which was, hey, Bill, it all comes down to two words and five letters. And that's own it. Yep. If you don't own it, you know, you won't get the benefit of that. You know, there's a risk from that standpoint also. And also, if you own it, you can control it. it it'll give you a, it, it's a huge advantage rather than just, uh, as Ray Ritchie and his podcast said, you know, collecting W-2s. Mm-hmm. That's what really, you know, drove that. But, you know, both Bill and Mac, you know, they spent a lot of time and, um, you know, I'm sure I was... In, you know, I had maybe four or five interviews here by different people from Lincoln at different times. And I'm sure they were talking to other people also. But, you know, I saw the opportunity at the time, Lincoln was considered, you know, the second largest developer in the United States behind Trammell. And it just it was like, hey, this is an opportunity I can't, you know, I, I have to absolutely, you know, capitalize on.
0: It's interesting. Lincoln targeted CB brokers around the country, I think. Uh, I think that was part of their their mission statement because Jerry Costelny in Chicago uh, was uh, yeah. had joined <laughs> yeah. Lincoln r- right before I joined uh, Cole Banker there and he was quite a character. Uh, I
1: we <laughs> we won't we won't touch any more than that. Yes, very successful guy.
0: And <laughs> then an- another colleague of mine, Gary Ketchadurian, in the uh-huh. office in uh, in uh, Oakbrook. Then became the the residential partner in for Lincoln, while I was there in about 1984 yeah. or five. So probably around the same time you joined Lincoln, I'm guessing. So
1: yes, Jerry and I were basically about the same time. Yes, it's interesting because at Lincoln, and I became very close to a guy named Tom Delator. And Tom Delator was sort of the top finance guy, mm-hmm. one of the top finance guys at Lincoln Property Company. Yep, and this will morph into our conversation you know, with the Robert Bass Group, but at the time, Bob Bass and David Bonderman and Jay Crandall, and Jay is a guy that I had gone to Bowden with. You we know, were very close friends. They were looking for a CFO for real estate, their real estate transactions at the Robert Bass Group. And so I got a call from Jay Crandall saying, hey, we're looking for a CFO. Hey, do you have anybody in mind? And I said, hey, you ought to talk to Tom Delator," And You know, Tom quickly, you know, gleaned the opportunity and left Lincoln to join the Robert Bass group. What year was that?
0: that, Out of curiosity. Oh,
1: it was nineteen eighty eight, eighty-nine.
0: Was Texas in distress at that moment, or was that before Texas was
1: going into distress. And (laughs) no, that's Texas was already in distress. I mean, I would fly down from Washington, DC, which at the time was the milk and honey, and I had just, you know, sold my buildings and, um, mm-hmm. you know, actually had cash and it was like in my pocket and it was, you could see, oh my goodness, Texas is depressing. And right. you, know, you think about Florida, Texas, California, yep. mm-hmm. and you know, you just, if you reflect back on that era, there were a lot of cranes in Washington DC. Oh yeah. And you, you <laughs> could see that freight train coming. And it was, you know, basically my decision to leave Lincoln was one, I was offered the job at at the at the time as Robert M. Bass group, but two, it was like in the next four to five years, nobody's gonna be doing doing new development. You're gonna be, you know, managing properties and um property management and and you know staying alive if you don't if if and so you know, since I had sold all my assets. I decided it was time to move on, but, um, but it was a, um, it was a great opportunity and I've always appreciated the opportunity that Mac and Bill gave me because, you know, it, I made money for them and, and, you know, it was the first time i made, you know, real money. And, um, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun working with
0: So them. how, how did you learn how to structure deals, you know, for development as a broker? you don't necessarily get to learn the nuts and bolts of how to put a deal together, how to structure it, put a pro forma together and all those good things. How did you learn that? Did you learn that at Lincoln? I
1: I learned that at Lincoln, but I have to tell you that Lincoln was, you know, you mentioned that they like to hire, you know, CB people. Yep. And probably most of us didn't have that background. Right. Except for Steve Pazicki in New New York did because he had worked at MetLife Mm-hmm. But, you know, even then, he hadn't done development. He had always financed them. But obviously, we all learned that. But institutionally, Lincoln Property Company was set up where you had all those functions in place. Mm-hmm. So really, you know, what they were looking for is find us the best site and, you know, we'll make the decision together. And, you know, we'll finance it and and do all the underwriting and oversee the construction for you. Okay. And so if you think about it, it was, it was a very easy transition, you know, to go, hey, this is great because I already have the, the team in place where I don't have to hire a construction guy, property management person, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, or finance because they're already, they're, you know, they're already there. And so that was extremely helpful.
0: So they did the underwriting for you and is what you're
1: saying. to somebody. Yeah, I mean, you'd provide, it was all part of a team, but yes, I mean, I would provide all the information undertake yep. the, under, the underwriting, right. mm-hmm. but they would, uh, you know, they, we all put it into the pro forma and, and, you know, is this really work or not work?
0: Right. So you found the site, you know, the market, you brought the market data to the table and said, okay, we really believe this is going to work for the for the rents that this, this is, et cetera, et cetera. So those were the, those are the ingredients you provided and then they did the rest for you in essence. Y-
1: yes. yes. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And then you know, once you had the, once you had the piece of land under control, and everything was in place, you know what they were really looking for is you know your market knowledge right. in terms of getting tenants. Right. And you know that's that's one thing I knew how to do because you know I had represented a lot of landlords.
0: That probably is why they wanted brokers like you, uh, exactly, to be development partners. Because that's exactly a- right the market information, the data, and the tenant base. So, of course, yep. uh, you would then go hire CB to do your bro- your leasing for you, I imagine, right? You would hire
1: CB <laughs> or you would hire, you know, whoever the best, you know, the best broker was. And, uh-huh. you know, and it's interesting because from our standpoint, we, um, I'll, I'll reflect back to, you know, Ray Ritchie when he talked about how when he first, you know, he basically single-handedly you know, leased up even before he had a listing, didn't even have a listing. You know, I guess, it was, I think it was called Capital Gallery at the time. But, you know, one one deal, one office deal that uh, Bill Curtis and I did is that, you know, we leased Democracy Boulevard yes. um, to IBM. And this You know, it was, we brought IBM to Boston Properties and made that deal happen. And, you know, we didn't have the listing, but I just treated that building like I did have a listing. Uh-huh. So, okay, and um, you know you you have to be a little bit aggressive when you're a broker, and um, you Did know it worked. Out.
0: Were you a tenant rep at the time? I mean, was that was that at that type of business? Nope.
1: No, I was just I was just go and um, okay. You know, meet with IBM, and um, literally they would. Uh, I say, hey, look, you gotta you gotta go to this building. You know, we should sure. know these people well, and they said, you know, let's set up a meeting. So we all well, met. They already had
0: the, didn't they already have a building there? They had the rusty bucket, which was. They had the rusty
1: bucket. That's exactly right.
0: Across from Marriott there. Yep. And then, so then they leased space at Democracy Center, which was. Yep. It's like
1: 180,000 square feet. Got it.
0: Okay. So they were already in the market. It was more
1: than, I don't even know what it was, but it was. Anyway, it was, it was a great transaction for all of us. And, um, it, um. I, I, it, it benefited all of us.
0: So, was the was the the tenant rep broker even did, that didn't even exist at that time, or was that uh, was that? You
1: know, uh, the answer is is that I think Studley, right, Julian Studley, there they were very tenant. They, I think that was their major focus rather than representing buildings. But right. you know, I, but. I could be totally wrong on that, but I think they were sort of the only ones doing it. And Ray was really the only one doing it in in downtown. He was sort of the first person to do it downtown. Interesting, You know, and I'm thinking back now, I mean, we even, I mean, talk about being all over the place. I was doing industrial (laughs) and at CB in Prince George's County, you know, uh, Columbia, Maryland, right. Sold 12th and Penn with George Forrest to, you know, CCNF, you know, did the leasing deal at Democracy Boulevard at, um, you know, with Bill Curtis. And then we sold to the Golette estate and David Evans Uh was their partner at the top of Tyson's corner. And that was John McEvely, Steve Spencer, and myself. And I think Bill Curtis was involved with that also. And so when you talk about Cole banker and how there's, you know, now you're slotted to do one thing, whether it's right. you know office downtown or industrial in, mm-hmm. in Maryland. I mean, we were it was the wild west. Everybody yeah. was all over the place, and you know it was very um, <laughs> it was it was very interesting. I can remember one time there was a uh, the this, the chairman of uh, CB came in. I think his name was Bill McAdams. He was about five foot seven and he walked in and he sort of sat down and he, he rolled out these rolling papers and started to roll his own cigarettes. Oh my gosh! And started smoking it in a meeting and he was, he sort of went around the table and I think it was Ken McVeary and myself and one other person. He said, so what are you guys concentrating in or on? (laughs) And I think we blew his mind because, you know, When you just started explaining, well, we're doing office in downtown, and we're doing industrial up in Prince George's County. And uh, I think he went to Jim O'Brien and, um, you know, said what goes on here. And Jim was like, "Hey, they're making money. Let's, you know, we can figure out specific strategies later on, but let's not touch it now."
0: It's interesting. It's a different approach, obviously, than where I started. We were all categorized. I was known as an investmentist because I was the first investment broker yep. in, the, in, the, in the office. That's what they called me. So, uh, And everybody else was user-oriented, focused on tenants and primarily. Um, yep. And they'd come to me when they had a deal they wanted to sell. So I would be involved in all the sale deals, which was mm-hmm. a nice position to be in to some extent. Yep. It was an interesting uh, interesting business at the time. So, uh, so you yep. decided, uh, at one point, uh, to step, o- step aside from Lincoln and join Mr. Bass. Talk about right. a little bit.
1: After I had sold my, um, uh, interest out of Lincoln property company, which was, um, essentially late 1989, I had been in touch with, well, Tom Delator, who I had mentioned earlier at Lincoln property company was the CFO for a real estate at, um, at, at the Robert M Bass group, as it was known at the time, and essentially what happened was is that he said, "Hey look we're looking for you know to set up a real estate program to you know capitalize on the distress that we think is coming in in with the RTC that had been set up So I joined and simultaneously another gentleman joined named John Graykin. i don 't know if you're familiar with that name, but no. so the real estate team was John Gragan uh, myself. And Tom Delator, and so what we did is, the early '90s, uh, we were very active in um, buying RTC properties in out throughout the United States. And John had set that up. John Grekin was really sort of overseeing that. What year was this, Bill? This was 1990 or 1991. Okay, and
0: you left Lincoln obviously because of market conditions, I have to assume. Yes. Uh, and so you saw this as, an, as a real opportunistic play, an opportunity for you, obviously with a very wealthy Texan who had significant net worth to help mm-hmm. set a company up. I assume that was your thought process at
1: the time. Is that correct? Well, it was that, but it was also the group that, um, one thing that, that Bob Bass has had done is, you know, he had surrounded himself with very, You know, smart people. So, you know, David Bonnerman and and Jim Coulter, who went on to, you know, they left after in 93 to buy Continental Airlines and then eventually formed Texas Pacific Group, now TPG. So you were, you know, with people like him, you were with, um, you know, others in the private equity group, which was Jay Crandall, who, you know, I'd mentioned beforehand, He he and I had been very close friends at Bowdoin College together. Mm-hmm. And always talked about doing something, and then within the private equity group, you had you know guys. Well, you had Dan Doctrow. I don't know if that name. Yes, um, Dan Doctrow, who went on to become you know deputy mayor to Mayor Bloomberg, and then right. you know was CEO of Bloomberg, and now mm-hmm. you know runs Sidewalks. You That's know, a you had pre- a
0: pretty strong team. You, you had, had a, yeah.
1: a group, a guy named Steve Gruber, who was. Um, you know, worked very closely, uh, very talented, and then you had, uh, you know, with the with the high yield debt group, you had a guy named Glenn August who runs Oak Hill, still runs Oak Hill Advisors, and you know, they're all very, you know, close friends. And it was like, you know, this is not, this is something that is a new spectrum for me in terms of being, you know, surrounded by by the just the intelligence and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the brain power, and so it was really fascinating. And so from my perspective, you know, I had gone from, you know, developing buildings, you know, which is a very singular focus to, Hey, this is, this is where I can take that. And, you know, not only, you know, invest in, in real estate companies. So Mm -hmm. from our perspective, what we did is we sort of took a two, two pronged approach to the business. One was to buy, we bought about $5 billion worth of RTC type properties throughout the United States. And, um, that was, I was on the investment committee and on the board of that, along with Jay Crandall and and Tom Delator. John Grayton ran it. John, you know, decided in 1995 to form Lone Star properties and Lone Star funds. And so he, um, you know, he decided to do that on his own, which was, you know, good for him. And so that's, but that's where we, you know, we're very, um, Very focused, singularly focused on on the RTC opportunity. What product product types were you focused on? All product types. Everything. You you name it. I mean, office, hotels, 25,000 acres in Temecula, California. You know, it was everything across the board. Mm -hmm. And so it was, uh, um, and then in addition to that, Tom Dellinger and I, what we really focused on was really read IPOs we were having a conversation with Tom Carr at, uh, you know, son sure. of Oliver Carr. Yes. and um, we uh, oh, basically said, Hey, look, what you really should do is do a read IPO. Mm-hmm. So we, we were the money behind that IPO. So we worked very closely with Tom and Oliver to, um, you know, make that happen. It went public in 1992 or 93. You know, we said, Hey, this is a great model I and mean, we should be, you know, taking this to other real estate companies because it's—you know—they're reducing their debt and their exposure, and they're turning it into equity, and they're—you know—they're underlying great assets.
0: So, what investment we, bank did you work with at the time? Uh, we
1: worked with, uh, Merrill Lynch and Lehman Brothers for um, Car America. Okay, uh-huh. And and then we went and did this with another company called Paragon, which was based in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, run by Bill Cooper. And uh, Tom Ferguson was the CFO. And um, we put up the money for them to go public. That took place in um, June of 1993. And that was another successful. So you know, IPO.
0: Were you convinced by the investment bankers that this was an interesting investment play uh, at the time, or was it more of a real estate play from your standpoint?
1: It was a uh, real estate play and also investment banker play, but also, you know, I think i mentioned that I've been business partners with Bob Branson, and he was sort of part of our group and Bob uh, was really came up with the thesis that you could keep your, you could maintain basically an umbrella limited partnership, which is really another name for an MLP. And as long as the developer kept their interest in an MLP, they would not be taxed mm-hmm. by the stock. Is IPO. that the
0: upbreed? Is that the, the upbreed structure? Yeah. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and Bob really came up with that. And what we did is we took it to Chuck Carlock, who was a um, was the head tax guy for the entire Bass family, and um, he said, "Yeah, I think this works." And that was Pandora's box that we opened. So that's, that's why we were able to successfully do car. So, so car happening? America
0: was the first upgrade.
1: It was actually not the first upgrade. The first one was Todman and, Interesting. um, but the, um, they had already seen our documents and they, they went out immediately and did it, which, you know, good for them. They're a great, you know, great company. And, um, I think, I think they're still in merger talks with Simon, but I'm not really sure at this point, but you know, regardless, so we took that same concept and did that with uh, a company called Capstar Hotel Company, and that was yes. really in conjunction with um, with our private equity yes. guys. I mentioned Steve Gruber and um, uh, you know Dan Dockroth, and so we took that public, and Paul Wetzel ran it. Really yes. talented hotel guy. I've um, met Paul. Yeah. I'm so Paul's, uh,
0: Paul's uh, sidekick is a former partner of mine, uh, John Plunkett. So by, yeah, 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 I yeah. think you know John.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. He
0: said to say hello, by the way. I talked
1: to him last week. Well, good. Likewise. Tell him hello back. Good guy.
0: Yep. And um,
1: so we, um, and that was really the, uh, you know, the foundation for our read IPOs. And so we then took the met um, actually Merrill Lynch put us in touch with a gentleman in New York named Bernie Mendick. Bernie yeah. controlled about seven million square feet of office space yeah. and what we did is we formed a joint venture with him a 50/50 joint venture to you know in his company to take to take that public and that was in uh, 1995 or 96 time frame. We were about to do the Reed IPO, but unfortunately, Bernie had some health issues that he felt like, you know, right after the IPO, he might not be able to, you know, maintain the vigor that it takes, you know, the first year of an IPO. Mm-hmm. So we ended up, you know, accommodating Bernie and uh, we merged into Bornato um, oh, okay. for that transaction. And that was really Bornato's first, you know, New York real estate um well, they, yeah, they, had they had been in
0: retail. They had been retail prior to that, right? Yes, yes exactly.
1: That exactly. Steve
0: Roth's uh, expertise was it was retail primarily. Yep.
1: And um, Mike Fazzatelli had, yes. uh, had just joined. Had just joined Vornato, and Mike's a really good guy. And so that worked out well for everybody. You know, that was sort of that. And then um, what we did is we had an opportunity through a, uh, a joint venture partner that we knew well, a gentleman named Jody Gessau, who lives in uh, San Francisco. He had had a company called Resorts International, which he had ended up taking public and selling. But one of his business partners was, was a guy named Sam Kaneko, And Sam Kaneko was a Japanese national. And he, came, both of them came to us and said, look, what we really want to do, this is in 1997 or 98. He said, look, I grew up in Tokyo. This is, you know, it was at the nader of the Asian debt crisis. I think there's a real opportunity here to buy office buildings in Tokyo. So what we did is we formed a company, Da Vinci, and we were buying. You know, we bought 22 office buildings in downtown Tokyo, and wow. um, that was the um, foundation for the for the first JRE, which we took public. We held that stock for about you know, four years and, you know, did well with it. It was a good time to be buying, you know, in um, in Tokyo from that standpoint. And, you know, after that, you know, it was 1998 and we said, you know, New York City was sort of a and New York City and also office buildings were out of favor because you had the beginning of the dot com and everybody was going to leave New York office buildings. And we decided to you know, make a real push back into New York. So what we did is we uh, went up to New York. We when we formed a, a joint venture, and we bought essentially six million square feet of office space in New York City, Two Thirty Park sort of being the most well known. Is this asset. a
0: portfolio play or one at a time?
1: It was one at a time, and so basically, what we did is we were we were sort of focused on B buildings and A locations. Mm-hmm. And our thesis was, is there, you know, not a lot of new development and, you know, this would be a good time to do that. And so starting in 1998, we, we aggregated that. As I mentioned, 230 Park was sort of our most well-known asset. Uh, it was, let's see. It was um, and then 237 Park and others in that area. We were, you know, very successful with that, and I'll come. I'll come back to that later in, in the conversation in terms of, you know, the time frame. But it was, uh, it was a good time to be buying office buildings in New York City. In 2003, we real, real,
0: real quick. What was your role specifically doing during that time? I mean, you came on in 1990ish. I mean, what did you do specifically? Were you just a partner and made decisions? Were you an I was anal- a, I was a partner guy or what were you
1: doing? Exactly? No, I was I was uh, basically, you know, our, our it was the real estate team at that point was really Tom Delator and myself. Mm-hmm. And um, we were, uh, you know, sourcing deals and then, you know, providing the capital to them. And, you know, when we invested in deals, what we were doing is, investing not only on behalf of, of Bob Bass, but also on our own monies. You know, okay, so you were our, you
0: were a partner right from the get-go then. Yeah. You know,
1: with your own capital. Yes. Okay. All, all those deals, I was a partner. So that's, you know, that's how it evolved. Mm-hmm. 2003, through uh, Jay Crandall, um, who was, was very close to Gary Holloway, we formed a, a deal where we took GMH, Communities Trust Public. It was a military and student housing company. Uh-huh. And um, we're still partners with GMH in many of our deals right now In the Iron Point Funds, which I'll come to later. And we held that. That company was public for basically two, two and a half years. And then, you know, a company, two companies came along and one wanted to buy the military housing, the other wanted to buy the student housing. And so we sold. You know, Gary was very happy with the outcome of that transaction that was I think we sold in 2005 or 2006 I can't so even remember only two
0: or three years yeah
1: well, okay yeah mm-hmm. that same year we formed another company called Oak Hill ReIT management and Oak Hill ReIT management was basically to set up a long short you know real estate investment trust fund because we um, we were approached by John Fosheim who is one of the co-founders of uh, Green Street advisors. Mm-hmm. And um, he really wanted to, you know, capitalize on, on his knowledge. And so that was a, a successful partnership. I think we basically, that ran for like to 2010. And um, we did very well in 2008 with the shorts, um, obviously. And um, really, uh, it, was a, it was a great sponsorship and a fun run with, with John from that perspective. 2000 I'm just trying to think here 2005 we formed a joint venture with a gentleman in in um, South Florida named Armando Covina. I don't know if you're familiar with that name no. or not but Armando is is an amazing man he uh, I, I don't like to use the word Godfather of South Florida in, in the Cuban <laughs> community but he was his family owned like four coca-cola you know uh, bottled dis- bottle distributorships in Cuba. And then when um, Castro took over, his dad was uh, was assassinated and his mother oh. sent him to Miami at the age of six. Mm. And she finally came uh, over, you know, the, when he was about 11. But uh, very successful man, very caring, very thoughtful. And um, I every time I'm with Armando, just through osmosis, I feel like I'm gaining wisdom he was an industrial real estate developer. Owned a lot, lot, lot of a significant amount of land around Miami International Airport. And what we mm-hmm. did is we were going to put up the money to develop that land. And um, in about twelve months into that process, a company called Florida East Coast Industries came along and and made us an offer at, to, to merge into them at forty three dollars a share. And Florida East Coast Industries. Controls the rail line from Jacksonville down to Miami. That rail line is like one mile west of uh, the Atlantic Ocean. Right. It also controlled maybe thirty to forty thousand acres and about eight million square feet of uh, office and industrial space. So we um, Armando thought, you know, this is this is pretty interesting. So we, um, we, you know, we all gathered together and did the transaction, and it was literally fourteen months later that um, Fortress came along and took us out at $87 a share. And that was the beginning of 2006. And that's when we said, you know, we don't really understand the real estate business. (laughs) We're, we're, you know, we thought it would hit 87 a share, but we thought it'd be over a seven year period. And it was like, we need to do this. We need to go back to New York City and we need to liquidate our entire New York office building. Oh, yeah. And so in doing that, we were out by the second quarter of uh, 2007 and all during that, we were all during that time, we were raising our first fund for Iron Point Partners. And so with Iron Point Partners, it was, you know, all the best partners that I had mentioned beforehand. In addition to that, it, uh, and Bob is still our single largest individual investor in all of our funds. An amazing man, very generous, extremely generous to, you know, educational and, and other, you know, foundations. And um, he was chairman of Stanford for a very long time and is still on the investment committee at Stanford. How old is Bob? Uh, Bob is uh, early 70s. Not so, much older than we are. Okay. And he's really um, very thoughtful. And, you know, it's um, it's been a great business relationship and, and a great friendship. Yeah, From so that perspective. It's been,
0: what, 30 years now you guys have been together.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I started when I was five, right, Sean?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: it's, um, it, he's, uh, it, it's been a great relationship. And, you know, all the people that work with him, you know, over the years, you know, whether it's uh, Brian Barrett or, um, you know, Jay Abair, they, they're all very, very, um, very smart and very thoughtful and always appreciate their, um, their input.
0: So talk about the evolution of iron point, why it's, why you set up a new entity to do that. And what, what was the strategy? And the we,
1: we set up the entity because it was, um, we thought, you know, we're going to need more capital than what we've been doing in the past in terms of what's going, what's potentially going to happen with distressed real estate. Uh-huh. So our first focus for iron point one was essentially to focus on, um, Uh, focus on getting ready for distressed to to focus on the greenfield development of data centers because we thought that was going to be a uh, a space that was you know that had been out of favor after the dot-com blow-up so there was very little new development of data centers and three we were very interested in affordable housing and to that degree what we did is we formed a joint venture with a gentleman out of Boston named Chris Collins, who runs First Atlantic. And at one point we had interest in about 38,000 units throughout the country wow. um, uh, in, uh, in affordable housing. And we've been net sellers since 2011, but, you know, really liked that business a lot and, and still, still really like it, although we're not invested in it right
0: now. Was well, there real value at the time in that business? I'm, uh, it's, yes. It's interesting. Yes. What yeah. just emerging from what? Two thousand eight, two thousand nine. That t- no, it
1: was there was real no prior to that there was real interest because nobody was focused on it. I see. You know, you, you would mention affordable housing, and people would look at you like, "Well, why aren't you doing new multifamily, or why aren't you doing you know new office buildings?" And mm-hmm. so, you know, therein lay the uh, the value proposition. We uh, raised our first fund. We had our last close um, in our first fund that was literally um, two days before Lehman Brothers, uh, you know, went under. And in terms of our fundraise and, you know, we're now on our fourth fund. And, you know, our focus is um, essentially graduate student housing. So graduate student housing is um, is really multifamily. But it's it's, uh, you know, right next to Brown Medical School, for instance, right next to University of Pennsylvania, Computer Science and Engineering School. And also adjacent to Wash U Medical School will be about 200 units. Mm-hmm. And you can lease to not only medical students, but you can also lease people in the neighborhood. Sure. So um, our another focus is uh, still doing, you know, Greenfield Development of Data Centers, but it's in in a joint venture with IPI, Iron Point Iconic. I'll come to that a little later. We have three uh, senior housing joint ventures throughout the country, which is assisted living, private pay, memory care only. And that's with a group called uh, Avante from Florida, Arizona, Vista Springs in the upper Midwest, and then from D.C. to Boston with a group called Benchmark. So... And we like life sciences. That'll be part of um, Fund Four. We've uh, we've you know have some some um, investments in that sector and um, life that science lab field, space. Lab space, so somewhat similar. You know, life science lab space is somewhat similar to data centers, where mm-hmm. you know you think about a you know one hundred and fifty dollars shell, but you know inside that you have you can have anywhere from eight hundred to fifteen hundred dollars a square foot.
0: Right. Clean rooms and, and that kind of thing. Yeah.
1: yeah, we have a couple of you know self-storage joint ventures that mm-hmm. we're, we're bullish on, and um, and also single-family rental will be uh, part of Fund Four, also. So, six, and just we think there's opportunities there, and um, so that's really the focus of Iron Point Four. So, Bill, tell me about your partnership with uh, Iconic Capital in your data center investing. Sure. So Iconic Capital is a, uh, is a partnership that's that's run by Devesh Makin. The partners are Devesh Makkin, Kevin Foster, and Jeff Felder. Ironically, Jeff Felder is an ex CBRE uh, alumnus, and um, all three are really sharp and very smart guys. And what we've done is we we're focusing on investing in build-a-suit opportunities, core and value add data centers throughout the United States and obviously that includes the major markets of Ashburn, which is the largest uh, market uh, in the United States. It also includes Chicago, Dallas, San Jose, Santa Clara areas, and in addition to that, we're in Hillsborough, Seattle, and also Atlanta, actually, and Ohio also. When I say Ohio, I really mean Columbus, Ohio, and specifically New Albany, which is sort of a, a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. And it's a business that we've, you know, we've been in the greenfield development of data centers since 2006. And, you know, if you think about it, the year over year growth in that uh, area is approximately, you know, it's well over 20% year over year. And literally in the last four months, you know, with the pandemic, you've seen just an absolute explosion. I mean, think about it. Zoom last year at about this time had, you know, 2 million Daily users in December it was up to five million daily users, and now it's over three hundred million daily users. Everybody's watching Netflix; they're at home watching ESPN Classic and you know everything else. And so it's it's really rather remarkable. It's a business that uh, we we will continue to uh, pursue. How did you meet the principals at uh, Iconic? Uh, we met the principals through mutual friends. Actually, the the, ba- the Robert Bass family had been uh, investors with them in uh, other aspects of in, in technology funds, and in addition to that, uh, Tom Lynch, wa- one of the uh, people, one of the founders of uh, Iconic, they played football together at Dartmouth, and so it, it, we've known them for about seven or eight years, and we just you know both came to the conclusion simultaneously that it was the it was the right pursuit. Uh, in terms of technology, real estate.
0: So that's the extent of your portfolio. It sounds like you're not doing. It sounds like you're staying away from the traditional four food groups in some respects.
1: You know, we've done we've done a little bit of retail. We, ha- you know, where we bought a piece out of um, bankruptcy, and you know, right next to DFW and retail, and um, you know, but you know, very little retail and and. Um, what we try to do is go where people are not. That's yeah, sort of um, that's smart. That's what we've tried to, you know, focus on. And so, I would say that with data centers, though, we're we're all in. So, how do you gauge your risk in
0: uh, in individual and and portfolio investing? I mean, what what? How do you me-
1: measure that, and how do you look at that? We're pretty risk averse. I mean, in our first fund, we, we had maybe thirty percent debt. On our, you know, overall, I think in our second fund, it was 40. Um, I think our third was 45. And, you know, our fifth is about 50 to 55, you know, Mm -hmm. with IPI. It's between 60 and 65. But keep in mind, those are 15-year leases with, you know, very strong companies. So, you know, different sort of um, format.
0: So who are your fund investors? Are they uh, institutional investors, high net worth, both? Uh All the above. All the above. Okay. So Bill, tell me uh, about your team at Iron Point Partners and how it, how it evolved.
1: Well, uh, the original team was uh, Bob Branson and um, John Barry and uh, Tom Lynch and myself. All the deals that I talked about from, you know, Tom joined in 2003. So he was, you know, very involved, you know, from then on. And he's now a Managing partner with me at Iron Point Partners. Bob Branson is uh, was a is now a senior advisor to our group, as is John Barry. They both raised their hands and said, look, I want to sort of go into, you know, semi-retirement, although they're still very active on the investment committee, which is which is great. And but the four equal partners at Iron Point Partners are now myself, Tom Lynch. Ryan Haas and um, Gene McEwen. And Gene, Ryan's background was that he was at a um, an accounting firm forever, went and got his uh, MS at MIT in real estate, and then joined us. And uh, Gene McEwen, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, he was at JER for a very long time. Oh, sure. Uh, he was head of distressed. Real estate for JR from like nineteen, the early nineties until two thousand three, mm-hmm. and then he, um, they did a mortgage free, which he was president of, and it, beginning of two thousand six, the stock was like at eighteen, and Gene went to the to the board and said, "Look, I think we should sell this company or merge it because like, I think there are clouds that are coming that I don't really you know like." They didn't want to do that, so Gene cashed out at eighteen dollars a share and then joined us to sort of. Be very involved with, with uh, distressed, and um, mm-hmm. he's an awesome mind from that perspective. That's the four, you know, the partners, and then um, there's a gentleman named Kevin Yam, and then and others. But Kevin is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, right underneath and very very strong also.
0: So you've stayed in the equity space primarily. Yeah. You haven't looked at the debt space at all in your investments. Is that it?
1: We really haven't. Our Oak Hill Advisors, you know, group, which is, you know, high yield debt, corporate or structured finance, and which is like a 30, it's a 38 to $40 billion, you know, fund that focuses on that. You know, we, we chatted about trying to, you know, do stuff together. But, you know, we do, we've always felt like we've done pretty well on on the equity space. And we're, you know, we like to really keep in that lane.
0: Interesting. Well, obviously, you you, you have to recruit the right kind of people and it's right. a different business model to some extent was right. so. Let's turn now to the uh, real estate markets a little bit. Uh, obviously, we're in a unique time. Uh, maybe before COVID and into COVID. What your thought process? How it evolved from those that transition, and I'm sure it's still evolving. And what you see maybe 12 months from now is, as as uh, as markets uh, transition from. Uh, what they are today.
1: Well, first of all, nobody can, you know, is it going to be a Nike squish is it going to be a U, is it going to be an L, is it going to be a W? You know, I don't think anybody can can really predict, you know, in beginning of June of, you know, 2020, I can tell you that nobody thought we would be um, you know, where we are today, all sitting in our homes and, you know, the unemployment rate in, you know, the end of December or January, of January was at 3.5%. Right. Um, now it's, you know, thank goodness it's dropped a little bit, you know, down to 13.3 from almost 15 people thought it actually might go up to 19 to 20%, but it's really hard to predict. I would say that until there's a vaccine, you know, people are not going to feel totally comfortable about, you know, office buildings or, you know, going to a movie theater or a baseball game and, and which is, you know, really unfortunate. But I think that's just the harsh reality.
0: Well, relating to what you said earlier about your portfolio um, emphasis, has the thought process changed pre-COVID to, to post-COVID? Where, you know, since it started, out
1: of curiosity. I would say that it's where we are focused on on fund four, and we've only spent about twenty to twenty-three percent of our fund. Yep. Which I'm glad that's the case.
2: Yes, um,
1: <laughs> fr- from that perspective, that. You know, we have uh, some office buildings. They're based in San Francisco area. One is just, you know, literally one mile south of SFO. And that was a basically a value add deal. You know, we're feeling good, very good about that. Just from the standpoint of, of, of its location, it's not over, you know, it's about 10 stories. It's not a 60 you know, story building. But I would say that we are definitely going to be focused in fund four on, you know, the the asset classes that I talked about, which is um, a little bit of senior housing, probably not as much as we had in our second or third funds. And, you know, keep in mind that's assisted living, not nursing homes. Right. Two, uh, very much will be focused on life science buildings, you know, focused on data centers through IPI. And we do have some public storage, a little bit of multifamily that's you know not high rise or, or urban, and then single family rentals is is will be a will be a large part of fund four. Interesting. So it sounds we, like
0: yeah, you know, the, the COVID hasn't really changed your outlook per se. It hasn't.
1: Been, well, it, look, it, it has to have changed one's outlook, but I would say that we've been very cautious in fund four because clearly. You know, in two thousand nineteen, you know the markets were getting pretty frothy, right? And so right. we wanted to, you know, we weren't going to be, and we're not core buyers, right, of real estate. And so, in in terms of you know Iron Point Partners, and so that's been we've we've always been very conservative from that perspective. And um, you know, as I as I mentioned, our you know our debt exposure in funds one, two, and three, and even four are, are you know sort of. and below on the whole.
0: So how is life going to change in your view? You know, obviously your funds, you're you're aiming at product types. I mean, except for the assisted living space is not as dense population wise as, as other product types like hospitality or office or retail where you have people congregating a lot. So other than that, so you don't really have that. What's going on now and what the concerns are for most traditional real estate operators doesn't seem like it's going to concern you as much going forward. Am I right with that thought process?
1: Yes, but I'm not, we're not frivolous about that, mounting our chest, because you know, it's, things can always change very quickly. But I would say that my own perspective is that just talking to one of the, um, the chief investment officer at Oak Hill Capital, private equity group who's, who lives in Montclair. And he made the point the other day, he said, you know, in my, in my town, there have been five houses in my neighborhood that have been on the market for, for, you know, well over $2 million and for almost two years. And there have been no bites. And then in the last four weeks, you know, there have been bidding wars on these properties that, you know, some have gone over $3 million just people in New York saying, you know, I'm out, I, I need to, be, you know, I need a little bit of green space. Interesting. I, and I, you know, and so, you know, suburban New Jersey, you know, suburban New York city, you know, Westchester, Scarsdale, you know, Bedford, you know, Greenwich, Stanford, they're going to benefit from that where they're, you know, it's been been a lot of long phases. So the, the condo
0: market numbers. in midtown Man- condo market midtown Manhattan is not a long bet for you Ben, is what you're saying.
1: You know, it's it's not.
2: <laughs> it's not.
1: But you know, there could there's there's gonna be money made there. And you know, there's some guys that have formed a fund, a pre COVID fund to capitalize on distressed, you know, real estate in New York. Right. You know, Andrew Farkas and, and Bob Lieber you know, um, and others have put that together, you know, sort of the C three. Uh you know, alumni or group. And, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against, I wouldn't bet against them because they're very smart, but I don't think you'd have, you sort of have to be right there in that marketplace and they are, which is Mm -hmm. why I think they'll, they'll do all, they'll, they'll be successful, but that would not be, that would not be us.
0: Well, it seems to me that we're in the early innings of distress at this point, looking at statistics The hit hasn't hasn't really come yet to a lot of the sectors. From what I'm reading, it seems that fourth quarter this year, first quarter next year, will be where you start to see some real pain in the more traditional sectors. Uh, Already, obviously, hospitality and retail has hit pretty hard. Mm -hmm. But the office sector and even in the apartment sector, the luxury apartment sector, could see some pain as a lot of these units that are coming on stream this year. Are trying to lease up, Mm -hmm. especially in the in the urban cores. So the question I have is: Do you think that the urbanization of America will slow down as a result of this to some extent? And you just cited the suburban growth of housing in New York, for instance.
1: And it's and and it's cheaper in the suburbs. You think about it. You know, you you wouldn't have any uh, late twenty-year-olds or or early thirty-year-olds talking about you know moving out to you know, outside of the beltway, And, you know, you probably are now, you know, yep. and so less, you know, clearly, you know, pre-vaccine public transportation is going to take a hit, which is very disappointing and sad from my standpoint, but mm-hmm. it's just, it's just a cold, hard reality. I think that, but I think the suburbs will benefit from that.
0: I mean, does any of this open up opportunities that you hadn't thought about before, I guess uh, in your thought process i am just asking you know not
1: really. I think single family rental is which we already we were already focused on uh-huh. is but that'll and that'll definitely be an area that we're gonna really focus on
0: so if It'll the be- distress really gets bad in some sectors where the the discount to 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 replacement costs is so significant that you say, you know. Maybe we should get into this. No, this is this might be worth thinking about. You know? Well,
1: you know, with hotels, you can always, you know, some hotels right. you can you can turn into multifamily, right? Um, exactly. Uh, um, there's, you know, that opportunity. You look at some, um, you know, you know, retail is is definitely hurting, but you know, even the B and C malls, they're pretty well located, you know, in terms of road network. You know, even though it's it's not where you'd want to, it's not a Tyson's, but you know you can convert that. Maybe you can, you know, convert that. Hospitals would be taking that space down. Could you see um, a data
0: think, center conversion from a of a regional mall? Potentially, no, was, no. okay, you could maybe,
1: but I, I would say, you know, you you don't want to ever say oh, you, you know, you you try to limit the words l- always and never. It's one of the things that uh, we were taught C- at CB very early on. Of course. Uh, but um, <laughs> You never know. You, you never know. But I would say that very, very unlikely. Uh-huh. Just
0: from a locational standpoint or just the physical uh, layout? Really, properly?
1: what, what data, data centers come down to, how close are you to a substation?
0: Right. right. So
1: most malls wouldn't want to have a substation right next to them because it looks ugly. Mm-hmm. but if it's right next to a data data center it looks it's it looks pretty <laughs> so, understood you know,
0: i get it yeah
1: yeah i think that um, that's not our focus but you know you, we also you know when you're given opportunities you you try to evaluate it and and try to make the right decision yeah so
0: if a developer came to you and said you know we've got a contract on this 50% leased uh, trophy office building and so and the tenants are all going to blow out here in the next 6 months. And we want to convert this into a mixed-use residential retail high-end type location in an urban core location. Something like that wouldn't appeal to you at all if it's the right situation.
1: Probably not, mm-hmm. you know, okay. but you know, under the right circumstances, you know, if it was whatever the value proposition was, you know, you'd have right. to evaluate it. But I say for you know for older buildings, particularly now, you know, with all the H V A C issues. Right, right, right. You've got to your capex is going to be pretty significant. Yeah.
0: Well um, we're talking stripping the building down to probably basically right. its bones. And then yeah. re- reskinning it and the whole thing. Yeah. And that's going on in downtown Washington right now. The yep. problem is you're building trophy space that is not accommodating what's happening right now unfortunately. So right. it has to be repositioned. So yep. there's going to be some it's, issues there.
1: Yes, there are.
0: Let's uh, shift gears, Bill, to uh, look at your uh, social lens, I guess is the next thing. Do you guys, when you're looking at investing, do you look at any, do you have a, more than just a financial perspective on, on your investment strategies or is it purely economics and market perspectives?
1: No, it's uh obviously that those, you know, all of the above from that standpoint, you know, in terms of, you know, when we do joint ventures with groups, you know, we really want to get to know the the individuals because from our standpoint, look, you can make money with, with good people and bad people, yes. but it's the good people that in the bad times, you find out they're true, you know, what they're really yes. made of. And yes. it's, we spend a lot of time focused on that also. So,
0: Bill, um, what I'm really trying to, to ask is, what is your policy on ESG
1: today? And how does that, how does Iron Point look at that? Well, it, it's actually an extremely important aspect of, of how we look in terms of investing in deals and also for companies. You know, clearly, ESG, you know, the environmental aspects of it, the social aspects, which obviously include not only diversity, but also inclusion. And then, lastly, governance are all are all matters that we take very seriously, and we implement in our, our investing thesis.
0: And your hiring policies they are indicative of that as well. Likewise,
1: yep, very okay. much so.
0: Any other trends that uh, you see that are you know, and opportunities that we haven't talked about already? Just some thoughts.
1: I think in, we sort of put our money where our mouth is in terms of trends and fund four and with IPI uh, and through data centers and what we have in fund four is, you know, life's, I think we've mentioned all, you know, our, our different approaches and, um, sure. I, we believe in those and that's where we're putting our money.
0: So you talked about your partners earlier. How, how large is your team on, at iron point? And, uh, they're, they're in Dallas and here. Is that where they are?
1: Dallas and here. Um, we have an, uh, office in here in Washington, DC. They're about 12 people in Dallas. They're about 12 people. And then, um, Reed Madden who is um, uh, he's out in San Francisco he had worked in Washington DC and his wife had an opportunity to do to work closely with uh, Apple and so um, he came to us and said you know uh, you know we' we I grew up in northern Ver- I grew up in Virginia my wife grew up in Northern Virginia and um, you know we'd really like to try this and he said I'm sort of like giving my notice he said no 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 you're going to stay with us. It's good to have somebody on the West Coast. So he, you know, he works out of the uh, out of the offices down in Menlo Park um, with great. you know the rest of the, the uh, private equity guys, and so that's very helpful. And he's uh, right next door to a gentleman named Matt Falk, um, who's our oversees all of our risk management insurance issues. Who's been an incredible part of our team.
0: That's great. That's yeah. great. So when you're hiring Bill, what do you look for in a in a prospective employee for Iron Point?
1: You know, essentially it's basically we don't hire right out of college. The normal focus would be someone has been an, either an investment bank in real estate investment banking for you know three to four years, or and that would be the ideal. So investing in equities primarily and
0: in, in deals. Yes. Okay. Yes. So have a deal, a deal sense understand what they, what they meet, what they are, how to underwrite, how to structure a deal, the whole, yeah. the whole gamut. Okay. Yeah. So three to five years in an investment bank is kind of your idea. Yeah. Okay. Now
1: it, you know, it can be a bank. It could be, you could be at Fitch or Standard & Poor's or, uh-huh. you know, but just, you know, having that, that background.
0: You'd like somebody that has a securities understanding as well as just the real estate right. understanding. So you want right. both. Yeah. Because of the, the nature of your investments and the fund structure that you have? And, yeah. Okay, yeah.
1: yeah. Exactly.
0: That makes sense. So let's shift to you personally. And what are your what are your priorities among family work and giving back, Bill? What do you, what do you look to do?
1: We give back in many ways. One is the Bowdoin College has been a very major focus. That's very important. And then um, Bowdoin College is... I been very, very involved, not only been on the board, you know, was on the board for 15 years, but continue to be involved with, um, you know, helping with fundraising. And then also from a community standpoint, you know, involved with my wife is Missy. We have a place in Middleburg, Virginia, and she's very involved with Piedmont environmental um, commission, PEC, (laughs) and also, you know, goose Creek association. And, Ironically, uh, when I listened to you know Cap Grayson's, well, his uh, mother
0: was a founder, I think of that. Yeah, it? and and
1: uh, Missy's father was a founder also. Oh, okay. See. So Small world, their families go back you know many, many, many years. So you know that's very much a priority, obviously. So those are the sort of the two main you know focuses, and obviously we give you know to, to others, but those I would say those would be the two you know, major focuses.
0: Great. And of course, you spend as much time as you can with your grandchildren and yep. and your children. As Absolutely. Much as possible. Which is great. Yep. Yeah. And looking back at your career, Bill, what would you call the biggest win in your career? And what was your biggest loss? And what was the most surprising event that occurred in your career, just out of curiosity?
1: Well I would say The biggest, the biggest win one is obviously family. I would say that the, you know, each time I've, you know, we're starting at CB, you know, and then was was a great win. I, you know, it was was a lot of fun and it was uh, it was very successful and and you know, associated with a great group of people. I would say, you know, Lincoln Property Company was another learning experience where you know once again you're. I was exposed to some, you know, great people and um, had a great run and we all made money together Um, and it was taking the real estate skills that I'd learned at CB and, you know, and they morphed Mm -hmm. it, you know, into Lincoln. And then from Lincoln, it was to, you know, essentially to take what I learned there, but also now focus on investing in real estate, but also real estate companies. It's been very enjoyable and it's been a lot of fun, but you also learn, I've learned a lot, you know, from, from the different people that, uh, you know, I've been associated with and um, it's, it's, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Has
0: just separating real estate companies from real estate itself, it's obviously you're investing in people as opposed to properties. Right. And that is, there's a distinct difference there.
1: <laughs> there is. Yeah. It's a huge difference there. So yeah. So we we'll We'll just leave it at that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what was the biggest hit? What are the biggest, you know, wow, uh-oh, how am I going to get over this one <laughs> issue? Well, biggest loss or thing that was the um, biggest stumbling I, block?
1: Look, every every day you have wins and losses, right? Of course. And, you know, sometimes the uh, the company, you know, that maybe the assets that you, that you had were great, But, you know, the people, there were just people that, you know, went off the track and I'm I'm not going to name names, but I would just say it's been, you know, it's only happened a couple of times and that's, it's not fun to have to deal with that, but, you know, you have to do it, but you have to make sure that at the end of the day, you have to protect your investment.
0: And so um, it was a partner that you had that just didn't work out well. Right. Yeah. Not internal to your company it was external. No, no,
1: it's never been internal to, to our company. Our, I would say that um, before you're hired uh, or associated with Bob Bass, you know you're you're very very well vetted, and um, mm-hmm. from that standpoint, and people not only um, uh, have known you for a long time, but all it, but you know they there's a lot of scrutiny as there should be. And I have no problem with that. And sure. you know, we obviously do the same when we invest in a company. You know, do the same sort of scrutiny. Sure, but it's um, but it's not always perfect. But
0: so, in the vein of what we just were talking about, what, what advice would you give your 25 year old self today?
1: I reflecting on how Ray Ritchie couched it. You've got to when when I started at, at CB. You know, everybody there. There were no roles. You right. were you know, you were told right. to just go figure out business. Mm-hmm. And Ray was maybe the first one that took a role, which was representing tenants only. Right. I mean, that right. was sort of his sole focus. But mm-hmm. when he came in, everybody was doing everything. In some ways that's too bad because you learn to cut your teeth. On the other hand, you probably learn a specialty a lot sooner and are much more educated about that. So that's probably a positive. But I think that you should never consider any idea too stupid, and you should never always examine it and take the time to understand. You know what's because although my vision my vision, which could be now termed old school, might not understand something. You know, there's always a there's always a proposition there to make money, and also not only from a real estate standpoint but others. And you, you've got to always be open to that. So go for it. That's what great. you believe in that's Because great. if you, um, and look, if you fail at 25, you've learned something. You know, we right. all learn from our failures. Absolutely. And, um, I think that um, uh, it would There's be... There's a good
0: time but, to fail. That's the time, I think. That's right? the time to
1: fail. Yes, absolutely. It is absolutely the time to fail. Because, and that's sort of the nature of the beast.
0: Exactly exactly so if you could post a statement or bill on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway or another highly trafficked location for millions to see what would it say bill
1: well first of all I don't know if you ever visited our website yes
0: there's not, there. there's not much there there's not much there
1: and we we try to be um, very uh, limited in terms of our PR and we'd always rather have our joint venture partners take the um, you know, take the credit and, um, and, you know, from that standpoint, but I would say you, you create your own luck. And, Mm -hmm. um, if you're not working hard, you know, you, you won't create luck. And I can remember when I was just starting off at CB and, um, I think Ray had just left and he had organized a, a Boston properties, you know, sort of, um, event for the real estate for for coal Banker real estate and and um Mort Zuckerman was the speaker. Right. And and Mort said, "You know, I view myself as a fisherman." And it sort of stunned everybody because, you know, here was this very successful real estate guy, but mm-hmm. he said, "You got to get up every day, you got to get into your boat, you got to take it out in the ocean and throw your net in it." Mm-hmm. And you you'll never know what what comes up. Mm-hmm. But And if you don't do that, you're not, you're not going to catch anything. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty good advice from that perspective. And, um, you know, I've always sort of adhered to that. I mean, I just, I just thought about this right now, you know, 35 plus years later, you know, those comments, but I I thought, I think that's, that would probably be the billboard. That's great.
0: great. Well, it's interesting. I'm going to, one final set, question that uh, you mentioned your, your website and I did go out there and I did a lot of internet research about iron point partners and there isn't much out there. So it's clearly a philosophy that you have to keep things kind of low key. And is that what, what is that Mr. Bass's personality? Is that your thinking or a combination of everybody or what, what's the, I, I what's think the it's, uh,
1: it was, it absolutely. It was, it was, it was Bob's, Sort of philosophy, you um, and you just you know, it's and it's workforce, and so that's that really um, that that is our sort of philosophy.
0: Well, it's interesting. Um, it would be nice that if you're the kind of humility that that ha- offers uh, was throughout the industry in some respects it would be very helpful. <laughs> Let's not
1: delve into that subject. <laughs> it's, 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 June, it's June of 2020 and we have an election. And
0: <laughs> Yes, yeah. I understand. I hear what so, you're
1: saying. I don't tweet, so we'll just leave it at that.
0: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> on that note, Bill, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I appreciate it very much. And uh, we will talk soon. So we uh, just listened to Bill, and it was good to talk to him. And so now I want to transition, as I've said in previous episode, that uh, Tom Amos, uh, my new sidekick on the podcast here, is going to join me to do a little post analysis of each of the interviews that we have uh, every year. Tom is a ULI member and. Uh, Someone whom I've met recently. And so he's going to join me for this and he's helping me out with the podcast in general on fit and finish of uh, each episode and, and give some perspective from a young leader's pers- uh, ideas. And welcome Tom to the, to the podcast. Thank you for joining me again. Thanks. I appreciate Tom. it. And so, uh, I'm going to let Tom uh, ask some questions, uh, based on his perspective and some, some observations, and then I'll react accordingly.
2: So go right ahead, top. Great. All right. Thanks, Sean. So Bill Janes, uh, another great interview that you had here, John. The thing that I wanted to dive into a little bit here today was the Texas bank crisis of the 80s. So you were talking with Bill about his time at Lincoln, which is headquarters in Texas. And I got some statistics here and, and kind of want to tie this back to what may be going on right now. With oil price movements. So the Texas bank crisis of the eighties brought on by, you know, a, a big bubble of commercial and industrial loans that increased alongside with oil prices in the you know, late seventies, early eighties, oil prices peaked in 1982 and then fell dramatically into 1986. They, they fell about 45% in just one year, which, you know, at the time, seemed like a, a a big deal, and then you know here recently in 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 2020 we've seen barrels at the beginning of the year at 61 dollars barrel they dropped down to negative prices in some cases, um, but you know really bottom out at 11 to 16 dollars per barrel, or we're down about 70 to 80 percent versus you know 45 percent back there in the 80s. So the the Texas Bank Crisis. We you see an overbuild of office space uh, in 1987. Thirty percent of offices were vacant in major metropolitans in Texas. And then you know what do the banks the, the, the banks do when when they're having issues with the real estate markets? Uh, they increase lending to construction and land development. So then we see this big boost in the late 80s, and that kind of led to the onslaught of the SNL crisis. You know. Texas was was kind of at the forefront of some of those issues in in 89 and 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 into the 90s that, that we had nationwide. 349 commercial banks failed in the 80s in Texas. And by comparison, if you looked at early 80s, mid eighties, and then the late 80s for construction loans in Texas, they were at 3.5% at the beginning of the decade. They peaked at about 8% in 1984 and then we're down to 2% of the total assets of commercial banks by the end of the 80s and that compares to just a steady increase nationwide going from 2% to 3% to 4% over the course of the 80s elsewhere in the United States. So what I wanted to talk about with you John was you know what makes the oil price crash that's going on right now different than Uh, the oil crash in the 80s. And, you know, have we gotten wiser with time or or what has changed since then um, that makes this one a little bit different?
0: You know, I think they're uh, a lot different in a lot of ways. I think that uh, the supply and demand situation in the 80s was a completely different issue than what we have today. The, The crisis today, obviously, is driven by the global pandemic. And, you know, People just aren't driving, uh, so you just you have a lack of demand here. Um, in in the '80s, you had a different uh, a different situation with with oil, and that had to do primarily with the Middle East and you know some of the supply issues that were driven by OPEC and uh, how you know the Texas oil producing was was affected from that. So. It was more of a wild west type of attitude, and things got a little bit out of control. And the SNL crisis was an evolution of that same thinking, and that spread, of course, across the country and affected us here in Washington significantly as well in the late eighties. So Texas was first in the problems, and then it came to this part of the the country, and you know Maryland and Virginia's savings banks were overly aggressive and trying to, to meet the demand for permanent financing. And our real estate markets got very, very well much overbuilt. There was an attitude that, you know, we can you know, one developer would say, Oh, I can build better than that. So we'll just keep building. And the governments at that time were not quite as restrictive as they've evolved to be now as far as be it building for to meet the needs of the infrastructure that is became a real problem (laughs) as things got overbuilt in the late 80s so just way too much of everything yeah and so the snl business just and then suddenly the demand stopped in the about 1990 in this marketplace and so the faucet turned off for demand of leasing And that just cascaded down, and uh, we had way too much supply, and the loan, the lending business went away, and we had to figure out how to restructure a good portion of the real estate market. So that changed the whole perspective. So relating it to Bill James and his career, he was at Lincoln Properties during this time, and they were a pretty active developer here in this marketplace. He was a, he built several office buildings. And uh, had relatively good success, and he was very fortunate. He, through that, made a relationship with Robert Bass, as we heard in the interview. And Mr. Bass, of course, was a, uh, an oil uh, billionaire from Texas. But he was different than a lot of the others. He, he was able to manage the risk a little better than some of his compatriots in Texas. And was a little more astute in his investing and brought on, he had some very talented people, as you heard about in the interview, on his, his team who subsequently left and formed other large private equity firms that Bill talked about. But Bill came on and ran this, you know, this local office and was able to institute more of a corporate real estate acquisition business and was able to then roll up one of them was being Car America, as he talked about, as one of the first REIT IPOs coming out of that crash of the 1991 crash, which happened, I think, in '92 or three. and then that really set the tone for uh, you know restructuring most many portfolios, not just in uh, the office sector, but in the retail sector and hospitality. The REITs really became the the tool to do that at the time. And that's how, uh, what you were talking about, you know, came out the other side along with in 1993, roughly the CMBS industry evolved, which was the commercial mortgage bank securities, which basically took the bad debt, recapitalized it in essence and securitized a lot of it, it re originated new debt to replace the debt that had been, uh, uh restructured before in the RTC. And so that's how buildings were recapitalized, and new buildings were financed as things evolved. And the '90s evolved, and we grew back out of that crisis.
2: You know, I think that that's that's a pretty common theme here on your podcast, John. That we've seen in a lot of these interviews, most of the people's success is dependent on how they, you know, whether handle a lot of these times of crisis or or difficult downturns. The one thing that I really liked about the uh, Bill James interview. I looked into this a little bit more his his investment uh with florida east coast industries so he talks about how they they bought in at 43 dollars per share in 2006 and then sold for 87 dollars a share or three and a half billion dollars 14 months later to fortress which you know what great timing we 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 talked about this a little bit that uh you know he he did a and his team did a great job at, at timing the market right there, and and I looked and the uh, Fortress stock from May of 2007 when when they sold, it's it went down 72 percent over the course of kind of the next 10 years until they sold to SoftBank in 2017 for 3.3 billion dollars. So you know what what great timing um, and, and for for Bill and his team.
0: Well, yes, uh, that. Uh, that timing was uh, interesting in that, you know, Fortress came to them with that offer and they just said to themselves, you know, I think we're in a different kind of marketplace right now in 2007. So they decided that we have to sell much of our portfolio. So earlier, as he had said, they acquired a large portfolio in the early 2000s of office buildings in Midtown Manhattan, uh, primarily on Park Avenue. And decided immediately in 2007 to sell that entire portfolio because they thought that now is the it's going to be perfectly priced because we're we're definitely at, at the top of the top of the market in their view and they were right. And yeah. Next year, Lehman Brothers went down, and of course, the markets cratered um, 2008, nine, and ten. So. Uh, they were very fortunate and uh, made the right call there.
2: You know, the last thing I wanted to hit, John, was you talk about with Bill your time at Caldwell Bank and and um, Caldwell Banker, yeah. Caldwell Banker, and and, and I think that real estate firm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's great opportunity with this with this post interview that we have um, to get a little bit more insight about yourself and your career. And and I thought today we could we could cover a little bit about maybe your time there at CB or 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 elsewhere throughout your career, um, just to let listeners know a little bit more about yourself.
0: So uh, I joined Powell uh, Banker in 1983 after I was laid off at a sister company at the time, which was Homeart uh, Development Company, which was a regional mall developer at the then in, in 1983. In so 1982, I was laid off, and just to give a little context, in while I was at uh, HomeMart from 1981 to 82, Sears Roebuck, department store company, acquired both Caldwell Banker Real Estate, which at the time was both commercial and residential, and uh, Dean Winter, which was a securities firm at that time. And they set up what was called the Sears Financial Network within the store. And they owned all state insurance. So they had their retail, their insurance broker, they'd have the real estate broker, and they'd have um, a securities agent uh, in these little setups in each every Sears store around the country. So Sears tried to diversify back in the early 80s to doing that. And, of course, we've seen what's happened to Sears. So it was a different mindset back then. So I joined Colo Banker uh, in that I knew that they were part of the family. And I had interviewed, I'd known them over the years as being a very large and well-known commercial real estate brokerage firm. And at that time, they were either number one or number two in the, in the country. And so I went to them and I was in Chicago. That's where Ohomart was. So I joined them in Oak Brook, which is a Western suburb. And interestingly, while I was there, uh, we were the number two office in the nation in, in production behind the Tyson's Corner office here in, in Northern Virginia. Uh, we were one and two in the country. We even passed the California offices where Cobalt Banker actually started in Southern in uh, San Francisco originally, and then their headquarters was in Los Angeles at the time that, that I was with them. So Cobalt Banker is now CBRE which is now still the global leader and in brokerage among many other services. And I talked about that in this interview, as well as my interviews with Ray Ritchie and Cap Grayson, who were both at the, there at CB CB at the same time as, uh, as Bill. And I was there uh, and I met Cap Grayson while I was at CB because he was the regional head of investing. And that's how I, got to know him. So I was there for three years and that was right before I moved to Washington, D.C. in 1985 and joined the B.F. Saul company here. And I've been here ever since. So the last 35 years I've been in Washington. So, And was with the, the same entity uh, that I joined the Saul company. We were sold to Lake Mason and then subsequently to Northmark Capital. So I was there 19 years within that same entity. It was owned by three different companies so, in mortgage, in mortgage uh,
2: banking. How has that kind of shaped your career? I mean, I, I, by comparison, other people that may have been with an organization and the same organization for, you know, their whole career, you know, the change in ownership and things like that that, that you went through through those years, how, how has that, how has that um, kind of shaped your career and the and, and person you are?
0: Well, in, I left 19, in 1985, uh, CB, uh, in Chicago and I moved here because I was recruited by the Saul company. And I, uh, I was a broker at Cobalt Banker. I was an investment broker and commissions were not frequent. And that's the only way I was paid. So I had to close sales of property because that was my business. I was not a leasing agent. And so I did not have. You know, I usually have four or five transactions a year, uh, and make to make a living. Well, I had a one deal that was a you know mid you know two three hundred thousand dollar commission that just uh, fell apart on me hmm. in mid eighty five, and I decided you know maybe I'm gonna maybe the brokerage business because I had just bought a house and I didn't have a lot of cash reserves and my wife was a little nervous about it, so we decided to look around. And somebody reached out to me from from Washington. It was a city that I was very interested in. I'd visited here several times and had friends here. So
2: there was a little bit more of a steady salary to to that that job. Uh,
0: Yes, when I started the BSL company, the mortgage banking business is a base plus uh, incentive bonus based on performance. Mm -hmm. So they give you a base salary. It isn't significant. You still it's performance driven, but you you still have to you know. It, it allows you to, to make a living enough to, to pay your bills and to have a mortgage payment, et cetera. And then we took it from there. And so my wife got her job here. And so I uh, was with the same entity. And uh, and then, then through, that was 85. And then in 1992, we were sold to Lake Mason. And that was at the rear end of the 1991 crisis. And I went on straight commission uh, one of those years, uh, 90, in 1991, the whole company uh, was in dire straits and was looking for assets to sell. We were one of them. And uh, in '92, with Lake Mason, I was with them for about 11 years until uh, they decided to sell. Lake Mason changed its entire strategy as a company, mm. and so uh, they sold us to Northmark Capital, which. That entity still exists, of course, and they're one of the largest mortgage banking firms in the country, and they still have a Bethesda office where I was, and my colleagues are still there. Some of the ones that I had, the fellows that run the office are still there. So I was recruited away from there by Ackman Sif, which is another mortgage brokerage firm in, 90, in 2004. And I was there three years, and then I went into development with a company called Concord did that for three years until the crisis in 2008 9, and then went into the workout mode with a couple of partners. We started working out loans with a company called Bald Eagle Partners, and then I went into two other partners. Actually, I wasn't, I was more back into the lending business, I should say, in credit tenant least because that was a challenging time to do conventional finance and real estate. So we did credit leasing, credit financing. Was there two years, and then formed a partnership, getting back into real estate as the markets returned, with two other guys to look at acquiring property and/or advising uh, on debt. And I did that for two years and three years, and then I started my own firm in 2015. So I've been bounced around over the last 10, 15 years since uh, since leaving Northmark. And I was one place, you know, one place for quite a long time but what i've learned is you basically have to uh and especially in today's working environment you basically have to set up your own business regardless of where you are as an individual in our and especially in real estate so whoever where you work and whoever you are you need to kind of be your own person and figure out where you are and how you fit into where you work be a team player of course and that goes with internally within the organization and also with all your clients and, and vendors and, and customers you deal with build strong relationships that's a critical piece and it's a big message I've learned from all the podcast interviews and and my career
2: yeah yeah and for sure it seems like we're in an era now where you don't have the same number of people that are their lifers and, and to your point all the more reason that um, those relationships are so important because. You don't know where you're gonna be, you know, longer term and 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 who you're gonna come across later later in your career. I, I got another question for you, John. So, you know, kind of this later stage, your involvement with with consulting and, and doing this podcast, how does how does kind of your entrepreneurial stage here at the, the latter part of your career compare to while you were in, in investment and lending?
0: Because of the amount of years I've been in the business now, I have I look at how I can serve the community and the, the the business as an advisor and share perspective on finance what I've seen over the my forty year career with younger people. And I've been an active member at Urban Land Institute here at the, the district council for the last twenty five years and being on the advisory board. And part of one of the passions I have is mentoring younger people. And I've been a mentor for 14 years now at ULI Washington. So coming from that experience, both learning from young people, how they look at things, and also liking to, you know, sharing my experiences and advice. That's been kind of the way I've redirected my career is working with younger, entrepreneurs primarily to help them start and build their businesses. So that's really my focus today. And uh, that's the way I'm, why I'm doing the podcast because I, what I'm sharing is some insights that uh, some of my contemporaries and a few years younger share with younger people and how, you know, it, it's a challenging business. And there are going to be ups and downs, but stay with it. I mean, I think, you know, I, I asked the question at the end of every, interview. So what would you put on a billboard? Almost everyone, it's, you know, it's in some form or fashion, it's some form of perseverance That's and right. stick to <laughs> it. How
2: would you answer answer your own question?
0: <laughs> I would stay. Uh, you know, there was a, there was a saying back in the, in the, uh, uh, in the crisis in 2000, or in 19, early 1990, stay alive till 95. And that basically that theme just hang in there, you know, yeah. against, against all odds, just hang in there and you will, you'll come out because the, mar- the markets will change and just keep a good attitude, stay networked, work really hard on what other people are needing to needing from you and look, keep your eyes and ears open about for opportunities because there always are opportunities. Even the darkest times, there are situations that, 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 that crop up that you should try to take advantage of. One year when I was uh, on straight commission at the saw company, there were two people that were my main clients and I was able to live by financing properties for them during that time. And most people said, God, the financial markets are dead. There's not much you can do. Well, I found opportunity. It was just situations that fit for the lenders that were still active. So just have to be you know determined to keep finding and keep digging for opportunities
2: that's good that's good well, that's all i got today john
0: yeah well thank you tom
2: thank you appreciate
0: your your uh input and uh, your questioning and uh so uh thank you listeners for joining us today and i hope you enjoyed this interview and the post post script so on to the next one thank you